Amen. Well, good morning, Grace Church. How are you? Good. It's good to see you. Nicole, well done. Nicole's my friend. She hosts the podcast, Stephen Sunday. She's our resident Gen Z person. <laughs> uh, I always tell the story. When I first met Nicole, we were trying to remodel the church office, and I was presenting carpet squares as like a good idea. And uh, our intern, Nicole, looked at me like new lead pastor, and she's like, Josh, have some self-respect. <laughs> like, don't, don't do carpet squares. So uh, that's made us have a great relationship. So thank you, Nicole. Uh, yeah, so my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have your Bible, would you grab it and turn to Acts chapter 9? Acts chapter 9 will be there in just a moment. Uh, over the last three weeks, we took a break to go through a series called Live No Lies. Pastor Scott led us through that. Uh, he did a great job. That book has been really meaningful to my own personal walk with Christ. So I'm glad we were able to do that. Uh, but now we're back, back in the book of Acts. So as you're turning to Acts 9, uh, I'm going to give you some background uh, of the story. So in 1978, an author named Michael Hart wrote a book called 100. And in this book, he ranked the 100 most influential people in human history. And this book gained popularity because it was controversial. Because in the book, he had Jesus Christ as number three on the list, number three most influential. Number two was Isaac Newton, and number one was the prophet Muhammad. And so for some people, that was great news. For others, it was controversial. But that led to a rise in popularity of this book and a conversation on what is influence and all these sorts of things. Uh, I was not so offended by Jesus ranking number three because in 1982, there was a greater controversy uh, in the NBA when a young man from North Carolina named Michael Jordan was drafted number three in the NBA draft that year uh, <laughs> instead of number one. That was Hakeem Olajuwon. And that, that was fine. It was okay. Uh, but that, that was the controversy. So I don't know what was going on in that time period, but in that little five-year era, it's like number three was really number one because it worked out for Michael Jordan. And it's working out for Jesus. So that, that happened. I bring this up. In Michael Hart's defense, he said Jesus ranks number three and not number one because Jesus had help. He had help from someone else. And that person was ranked number six on the list of the 100. And that person's name was Paul. The Apostle Paul helped Jesus, therefore putting Jesus at number three. And so the Apostle Paul was the one that took the gospel to the rest of the world, though Jesus was the one that gave us the gospel. And so today in Acts chapter 9, we are talking about the number six most influential person in human history. This is not a religious take. This is a secular take. Uh, and they put Paul as that influential. And so today we're going to get his origin story, his backstory. How did this happen well, before he was the Paul the Apostle, he was Saul of Tarsus. And for us to understand the transition, we got to look back at his story for just a bit. So it's by way of backstory. Uh, Paul was born in Tarsus, which is a small town or a modern day like central, south central Turkey. So if Jerusalem's over here, then up and around the corner to the left, 600 miles is where Saul was born uh, from Jerusalem. He's a Roman citizen. He was a Pharisee, which meant he grew up going to the best schools with the best teachers, and he was one of the best students in that world. He was zealous for God and so zealous that in the last chapter, Acts chapter 8, Saul oversees the first martyr, like the first time someone dies for Jesus, a man named Stephen. Saul is there overseeing that. And so this is where we find him in the story. And he's, he's like the best of the best in his class. He's the Michael Jordan of Pharisees in this world. And so... Uh, there's this place in Philippians chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul talks about his life before Christ. 
and kind of list his credentials. And he lists them as like, here's the seven perfect number. Here's the seven things I do better than anybody. It's like you're out in the schoolyard and people start talking about how good they are. And Paul's like, let me settle this right now. Here, here's who I am. And nobody can compete with this. I'm the best of the best. So in Philippians 3 verse 5, uh, Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. He's like, nobody did it better than me. These are my achievements. This is my pedigree. I am second to none. The seven things he lists are perfect. So the first thing he says is, uh, and this is... (laughs) This doesn't sound like something you would brag about, but in this world, it's a big deal. First thing, he's like, I'm uh, circumcision on the eighth day. And everybody would have been like, whoa, that's crazy. (laughs) For us, you're like, what does that mean? I I ask your neighbor if you don't know what (laughs) circumcision means. But in Genesis chapter 17, verse 12, it says, for the generations to come, every male among you must be circumcised on the eighth day. So Paul's like, since the eighth day of my birth, I've been following the law. I've been doing this right. That's funny to me. Okay. (laughs) Number two, he says, I'm actually Jewish. Like I'm actually from the people of Israel. I'm Jewish. Number three, uh, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin is the youngest of the 12 sons of Jacob. He's the beloved son. And so uh, Paul is like, I didn't lose my lineage. I'm Jewish and I'm from the best tribe of the Jewish people. Number four, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. You speak Aramaic, you may speak Greek. I still speak Hebrew. I speak the ancient language. He's boasting about this. Number five, I'm a Pharisee. I had the best teachers. I was the best student. None of y'all were better than me. Nobody had the Bible more memorized than me. At number six, as for zeal, I persecuted the church. I killed people who disagreed with me on all of this stuff. And then lastly, for righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Like that is a bold statement. I was blameless. You could take the law put it over my life and you would find no fault. That's what Paul says about himself. Now, this was all before Acts chapter 9. And then after Acts chapter 9, when he follows Jesus and becomes a missionary, he writes a letter to a young pastor named Timothy right before he dies, his beloved son, Timothy, in the faith. And here's what Paul says about himself in looking back on his life in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 12 says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord is poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. No one's worse than me, Paul says. Earlier, he was saying, no one's better than me. Now he's saying, he's like, no one's worse than me. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. So all of that backstory is for a purpose. So as we read Acts chapter 9, read it in light of this purpose that God intends Paul's conversion and his calling to serve as a pattern for our hope. God intends that Paul's life, his story, his conversion story, his calling story would serve as a pattern for all believers in the future to find their hope from this story. This is what he says in 1 Timothy 3. God was patient with me so that I might be an example. I might be a pattern for anyone who comes after me. 
So as we read today, we're reading the Apostle Paul, who ultimately does become the missionary to the Gentile world. He goes on three or four missionary journeys across Europe and Asia Minor. He writes 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. If you have a favorite Bible verse, it was probably written by the Apostle Paul. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's, that's this guy. He codified doctrine that is now so uh, beautifully holding the church connected. He wrote maybe the greatest piece of literature in the whole world. The, the best piece of literature ever written, many people would say, is the book of Romans. Written by Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And something happened to him in his life that changed everything. And the question is, what was that? What changed everything? Well, let's, let's read it in Acts chapter 9. So Acts 9 verse 1 says this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that he, if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So the Bible says Paul is breathing in and breathing out murderous threats. He's full of rage and malice towards this early church. He's actively pursued them in Jerusalem, and now he wants to go to Damascus, this town a little ways up north where, where more people are becoming followers of Jesus. He gets, auth he gets authorized to do this, and he intends to shut down this group of people following Jesus. It's kind of interesting. The first name given to the early church was not Christians. The first name is uh, followers of the way. That's what they're called. That's the accusation against them, that they follow the way of Jesus. And so that's, that's who he's after, is people that follow the way. Uh, it, it is said that this is where Disney got their inspiration for the TV show, The Mandalorian. Um, so <laughs> it's not true. But uh, I know that many of you out there are like, man, Disney's the enemy. No, listen, Disney is subservient to the word of God. The Christians were the Mandalorians before the Mandalorians were in existence. This is the way. Any Mandalorian fans out there? No? few of you. Okay, good. Gosh, tough crowd. All right. We were the first ones to follow the way. That's all I'm saying. It's in, it's in the Bible. Verse 3. As he, Paul, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell on the ground, and he heard a loud voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked him. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So this light must be super bright because it's the middle of the day and Paul is blinded by this light. It's a light brighter than the sun and it knocks him to the ground. And in the middle of the light, he hears a voice speaking to him saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now to be fair, Saul is not persecuting Jesus. He's persecuting Christians, followers of the way. But this is what's so beautiful about Jesus. Jesus doesn't see the church as an it. Jesus didn't see the church as a building. He doesn't see it as a nonprofit. He doesn't see it as a 501c3. Jesus sees the church as a me, as a me. He is so unified with the church that to persecute the church means to persecute him. Christ and the church are one and the same. There's no separation between the two. This is marriage language. If you're married, you understand this. You can't tell me, Josh, I love you, but I don't like your wife. I hate her. I actually hope she never comes around. You're like, well, to persecute her is to persecute me because we're one. There's union there. We get this from Christ and the church. And in this moment, the bride of Christ has an enemy. That enemy's name is Saul. Saul is headed to Damascus to attack 
murder, pull away people who are followers of the way. And on the journey, Paul meets the head of the church, Jesus Christ himself. The resurrected Lord shines brighter than the sun and knocks this man to the ground. Paul, full of arrogance and rage and pride and and, and authority, he's going to go and he's going to do this thing. And on the journey, he meets someone who has a greater authority, a greater power, a greater knowledge, a greater understanding, and knocks him to the ground. And Jesus says to him, are you persecuting me? And Saul responds like, he, he doesn't know it's Jesus, so Saul responds like, oh, great being, whoever you are that's this bride in this lot, I would never persecute you. Who are you, Lord? And, and really, it's a better translation would be like, who are you, sir? It's kind of this term of honor and respect, but, but really Saul's like, man, it's, I'm not after you. I don't know if you know, but I'm after these Christian people, not after you. So whoever you are, sir, uh, just tell me your name. And then out of the bright light, you hear Jesus say, I'm Jesus. I'm the one you are persecuting. I am the one you are after, and this is the beginning of the pattern. This is the beginning of the hope, and this is the hope that, that according to the word, we're supposed to all live in this pattern in some way or another in our conversion and our calling. So the first thing that this pattern shows us, the first thing that gives us hope is, is number one, God is pursuing you. God is pursuing you. Before you were a believer, now that you are a believer, God is so gracious and good and loving and wonderful that he is actively pursuing you right now. Not as a needy, codependent partner or as like this, you know, manipulative overlord. No, no, he's, he's pursuing you like a father who wants to be with his children. Or in this case, a husband who wants to be with his wife. God is actively inviting you into communion with him. Now, I had professors in college that would say, God is a gentleman. He's going to do it in a way that's honoring and kind and gracious and kind of alluring to you, invitational to you. And, and, and that's often what it looks like. But in Acts chapter 9, the Bible tells us that God is willing to throw you to the ground to get your attention. And maybe you've had that experience where you're like, man, I was totally ignoring every one of the ways God was pursuing me, and it took God throwing me to the ground and blinding me to get my attention. That's on the table here because the God who created everything wants a relationship with you and he's actively pursuing you. And that's great news. I can say to all of you with great confidence, God is pursuing you right now, right where you are. He's actively engaging you to be in relationship. But let me be clear, church. We are not pursuing God. He's pursuing us. If you're here and you're a believer in Christ, it's because God pursued you. He came towards you and you're chosen by him, you're loved by him, you're adopted by him, and he gave you grace that you did not deserve. He pursued you. He sought after you. And that's his promise, and that's great news. That should move us. Uh, right now, my youngest daughter, I have three daughters. My youngest one is four years old. Her name is Jane. And over the last two weeks, she's been doing this thing where she tells me she doesn't love me. It's like her new thing. So I'm like, Jane, do you love me? She's like, no. Like, Jane, can I have a smooch? No. No kisses, no kisses. So we're kind of playing this little game. I don't know if she thinks it'll make me mad or what, but she's like on a mission to show me that she doesn't love me. And so I, I'm kind of playing it up, and I think she's wondering if I'll reciprocate back to her non-love, right? And so I'll, I'll ask her, Jane, do you love me? She'll say, no, I don't love you. And I'll take her little hand, and I'll kiss it, and I'll say, it's okay. Dad loves you. 
do you love me? No, I don't love you. And then I'll kiss her on the forehead and I'll say, it's okay, dad loves you. And then I go really over the top because I'm one of those parents and I'll like try to look her in the eyes and she won't look me in the eyes. And I'm like, and nothing you could do could make me love you any less and nothing you could do could make me love you anymore because that's what you tell a four-year-old, right? And so I'm like, you know, throwing all this love on her. And, she, and again, do you love me? She's like, no, I don't love you. And this has been her thing. And as I'm studying Acts chapter 9 and seeing my daughter kind of play this game, I'm like, there, there is a connection here on how I'm pursuing my daughter and how God pursues us. There are many of us that were like, God, I, I don't love you. And God is so gracious. He's kissing our hand, kissing our forehead, going, it's all right. I love you. Do you love me? He, he invites you. Do you love me? And you go, nah, man, I don't, I don't love you. He's like, it's okay. I'm, I'm loving you. I'm pursuing you. And what my daughter doesn't realize, maybe she does, but we're literally keeping her alive. <laughs> like, we leave her alone. She doesn't make it. We, we leave her alone in the bathroom. She doesn't make it. No, much less like the earth, right? So she, she is being kept alive by us. We are providing everything for her. And yet in the kitchen, when I kneel down and say, do you love me? She goes, no, I don't love you. And yet that's, that's the story. We have a God who provides everything for us, literally keeping us alive. We go, I don't love you. And he's gracious. He goes, it's okay. I love you. I'm going to continue to be kind towards you. He's pursuing you. It's beautiful. That, that's hopeful for us. So number one, God's pursuing you. The second thing in the story is you've been blind, and I've been blind. In this particular story, self-righteousness is what's blinding Paul. You may be a person who's blinded by unrighteousness, and you're just living however you want, and you're blinded by your sin and your rebellion against God. I don't know where you are, but in this particular scenario, religion is blinding Paul because the Pharisees were dedicated to maintaining their key status as the religious leaders that, that had the knowledge of God, the control, the power, the autonomy, the self-fulfilling own authority. They were the kings of their own world. They judged everything. They knew all. And here was, here's how it played out. They worked to be right. They did all these actions to be right so that they could stand before God as if they were right. And it was blinding them. Their self-righteousness was blinding them. It was blinding Paul. And the truth is, this is a real option in the church. Sometimes churches can feel like if I want to be a part of that community, if I want to follow Jesus, I just have to be like really good. Like I need to get my act together. Maybe you invite someone to church and they're like, well, you know, let me clean up a little bit, then I'll go to church. And there's almost this message that says, like, if you want to be a part of this thing, you got to be, you got to be a little more righteous than you are. I know I felt this even in college. Uh, I think my motives were pure, but I remember going to college and my roommates and I, we were like, we were going to be Navy SEALs for Jesus. So we got together and we made like this huge manifesto, this, this list, and we basically committed to never sin again, right? And we're like, here's all the things we're never going to do again. We'll never do any of these things. We made a list. We signed it at the bottom. We pricked our finger and put blood on it. So, and then we put blood on each other's paper. Is that weird? It's normal, right? You guys haven't done that? No? Nah. You should try it. It's a good idea. It's, uh... But we did that. We were... We were drafting documents, telling God, we're never going to sin again. God, look at us. And of course, we couldn't sustain that. And instantly you feel shame. And the response to the shame is, I need to earn it again. And, and we were being blinded. We were being blinded. We were becoming Pharisees. So if you remember Jesus and his engagement with the Pharisees, what was the problem with Jesus, according to the Pharisees? He was a threat. Why was Jesus a threat? Because he was proclaiming a kingdom 
that was available to anyone who would freely receive his grace. He was, he was building a, a people out of all kinds of the wrong people. And so forgiveness and grace is always threatening to the self-righteous, always threatening. But forgiveness and grace is always inviting to the non-righteous. And so you have Paul here and all the Pharisees looking at God, basically saying, God, you can't just go around forgiving all kinds of people. These are bad people, God. They need to be punished. Jesus, you can't walk around saying the things you're saying. You're a fraud. You are a fraud and you're leading people astray from the God of the Old Testament. Because if you think about it, why was Paul so committed to travel and kill Christians? He thought he was honoring God. He thought he was purifying the people of Israel. He really believed that Jesus was a fraud, that the grace and the message Jesus was preaching was a fraud. He believed that all of it was wrong, and so he was zealously, at a level of murder, willing to do whatever it takes to purge the people from Jesus. And then he realizes something on the road to Damascus. He had to get blind to finally see. And so Jesus blinds him, and for the first time, Paul realizes that Jesus of Nazareth is not dead. He's alive. And he is now confronting an enemy of his bride. He, he is, he's overwhelmed by the truth that everything that Jesus said and did was true, and this, this realization means that when you stand before God, you will not be standing before God on the basis of your own good works. You will now be standing before God on the basis of Jesus' works. And that's a very different story. And Paul was blind to that. But this is the truth, that good people don't stand right before God. Forgiven and righteous people stand right before God. And you and I have been blind to that. That is, that is one of the massive misdirections. That's one of the massive blindings of the enemy to let people believe that they need to be good in order to be favored by God. But this, this, is, this is when the scales come off, and you and I have to realize this. This is a hard realization, but Paul gets it. He spends the rest of the New Testament writing about this truth. And you and I have to realize our good deeds... And our good works are just as damnable before God as our bad deeds and bad works. Your good deeds and good works are just as damnable before a holy God as bad deeds and bad works. Because those good deeds were self-serving. Your motives were wrong. You had pride. You were all about yourself. They're both a radical misunderstanding of the gospel of Jesus. And for the first time, Paul sees it and he's blown away. Literally falls to the ground and goes blind by what he sees in Jesus Christ. And this is, this is a progression that's pretty normal in the world. I would say if you're here and you're on the, the road to believing in Jesus, here's how the progression usually goes. The first thing is you usually get uh, disgusted by the church. So if you're here and you're not a believer, you're probably like, don't really want to be here because you're like, I don't really like the church. Kind of like judgy of the church, you're mad at the church, and you can be disgusted by the church. I've, I've gone through that. We've all had that. And then you move from disgust of the church, secondly, to you're no longer disgusted by the sin of the church. You're disgusted by the sin of yourself. And it goes from the church to yourself. And then you re-engage the church, not as a judge, but as a humble servant who needs grace. That's what happens in Paul's story. That's what happens in our story. From disgust of the church to disgust of my own sin to re-entering the church, saying I'm just a humble person in need of grace. And that's what happens. Now here's the last part. 
So yes, God pursues us. We've been blind, but he pursues us. And then lastly, this text shows us that your past doesn't disqualify you from God's grace. Your sin is no match for God's grace. What was accomplished on the cross and what was vindicated in the resurrection proves that no one is too far from God's grace. The Apostle Paul stands as the ultimate example that no one is unredeemable, no one is unusable, anyone can be saved. The power of God is available. If you picture in your mind the person who is furthest away from God, you go, that person could never be saved. The Apostle Paul's story says, actually, they're closer than you think. Jesus could meet them today, throw them on the ground, show them his glory, and save them. Your past doesn't disqualify you from God's grace, but you do have to do something with your past. You have to do something with your story. So the question is, what, what does Paul do with his story? What does he do? Because in Philippians chapter 3, 1 through 6, he tells you all of his achievements, his pedigree, his, his story. He's like, I'm the best there ever was in this world. But that, I stopped reading in verse 6. He keeps going. After he has this transformation experience with Jesus, he, he keeps going. In Philippians 3, Verse 7 says this. It says, But whatever were my gains, but whatever were gains to me, verse 1 through 6, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Garbage is the only word in the New Testament that some scholars say might be a cuss word in the original Greek. That's how strong Paul is trying to communicate what he thinks about what he used to be. I consider it garbage, manure, a pile of dung that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or already, already arrived at my goal. But I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, do not consider I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. What do you do with your past? One thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So many of us are enslaved by our past. And so many of our pasts our stealing, our purpose, our identity, our future, our calling. And many of us, because we've sinned and we've all sinned, we go back to that good works world. We go, God, I know I did wrong. Let me just do some good stuff for you. God, let me just make it right. I know you saved me and you're so gracious, but man, I really screwed this up. So let me go make it right. So much of us have shame and guilt and those things don't allow us to move forward. And the message of the gospel is that that stuff's been covered. It's been taken care of. It's been transformed. You're a new person. You've experienced new birth. So your past does not have to determine your future. But you do have to do something. 
You have to do the work of forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. So here's what Paul said. Here's what he means. That anything in your background that hinders your pursuit of God should be put out of your mind every day. Anything in your background, shame, guilt, sorrow, brokenness, anything done to you, anything done by you, anything in your past, it needs to be put out of your mind as you pursue the joy of God daily. Listen, the, the point is n- not to never look back. That's, the point is never, not to never look back. The point is only look back for the sake of pressing forward. Only look back for that sake. Because some of us have memories of success in the past, and that can make us self-satisfied or smug. Some of us have memories of failure in the past, and that can make us hopeless and feel paralyzed in our pursuit of God. So, so it's not that we never look back. It's just that we, we give humble thanks for the success that God's brought us through. We make humble confession for the failure we've experienced, and then we turn to the future and pursue the joy God has for us in Christ. Many of us are stuck in the success of the past. Many of us are stuck in the shame of the past. We've got to let that go because God is pursuing you. He's removed the blindness, and he's inviting us to move into the next phase, and that often looks like a whole different identity, a whole different worldview, a whole different pursuit in the world. For Saul, it was literally a name change. Uh, Saul is the name of the first king of Israel. And he was very tall, very handsome, looked like this leader. He was Saul the Mighty. And then his name goes from Saul to Paul. And the word Paul means small, means servant. So he goes from Saul the king to Paul the servant. Is that not a perfect parallel to the story of following Jesus? That you go from being the king of your own life to now someone who's humbly grateful to serve the true king. That's the progress, and that's the progression. So let's pick up the story in Acts chapter 9, verse 7. So there was people traveling, the men traveling with Saul. They, they stood there speechless when they heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything. So they led him by hand to Damascus, and for three days he was blind, and he didn't eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on State Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority of the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument. To proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, the easy part of the sermon was telling you how we can find hope in the conversion of Saul. God pursues you, even though you're blind, God loves you, your past doesn't have to dictate your future, all of which is gospel truth and we should believe and find hope in. And then the story moves because, listen to me, church, you're not just saved from something, you're also saved to something. We can also find hope in the calling that Saul experienced. So he, he's saved and converted, and then he's called into something. He's Paul the apostle. But what he is called into, it may surprise us, because this text is clear. Paul was chosen, but he was opposed. We see that in his life in the New Testament. He's opposed all the time. Secondly, he was chosen, yet it took many years to prepare for ministry. He spent 15 years in Galatia preparing for this role. Thirdly, Paul was chosen, yet he suffered. So we can't just find the hope of his conversion. We also have to find the hope 
in his calling because the Apostle Paul is following the pattern of Jesus here. Preparation, opposition, suffering, preparation, opposition, suffering. And this part of the sermon is much harder to preach than the beginning because sadly, there is a version of Christianity that proclaims in books and teachings and podcasts and all kinds of ways that that basically says God would never do this to you as a Christian. There, there, there is a whole brand that said God is only for your victory. He's never for your defeat. And it's always like weather metaphor. Like God's, like you're in a storm right now, of course, right? Like there's a storm, but just wait it out. It's going to be like the tropical depression that hit San Diego. It's not going to be that bad. Like everyone's going to panic and go to Costco. Uh, but don't you worry. Like God's got you in the storm. And even though you hear the word hurricane, don't worry. It's, going to, it's actually going to go further east, and you're going to get like two or three inches of rain, and it's going to be good for the city, right? So that, that, that's the gospel nowadays. Um, you got a storm coming, but don't worry. Uh, and that, that's available to us. But listen to me. This, this is out of the mouth of Jesus himself. Acts chapter 9, talking about Paul. Jesus himself says, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to the kings and all people. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Church, I don't know if this fits into your theology, but I would encourage you, you must make room for this theologically because there is a glorious fellowship available right here that so often we do not talk about, that Paul gets this. Now, don't misunderstand me. There will be an eternal victory one day. There is coming a day when Christ is going to make all things right. All of the tears are going to go away. All of the brokenness is going to go away. Everything that's sad is going to be untrue. That day is coming. Eternal victory is guaranteed on the way, but it often comes through earthly defeat. Do you have room for that? It comes through earthly suffering. And Paul seems to be so okay with that that in Philippians chapter 3, he references this. And Paul says, I long for the fellowship of suffering with Christ because I want to be like him. Apparently, there's something available in suffering that's not available in other places. There's a fellowship with Christ available in suffering that's not available anywhere else. There's a fellowship in being defeated for Christ that's not available anywhere else. That apparently Christ will meet you there in a unique way and you get to become like him. You get to know him more because you get to experience what he experienced. And Paul's ultimate aim in life is I want to know him. My ultimate aim is in happiness. My ultimate aim is in my own self-gratification. My ultimate aim is in following my dreams or the American dream or whatever. My ultimate aim is to know him. And if suffering allows me to know him, then I would like a double portion, please. Because I know him there. I fellowship with him there. And catch this, church. In the suffering, you experience the power of the resurrection. Paul says, I I, I suffer, I fellowship, and I experience the power of the resurrection, and I know him there. There's an intimacy available in hardship that's not available elsewhere. It's beautiful, and it's powerful, and it's biblical. And we shouldn't run from this. We've seen this throughout history. Uh, C.S. Lewis, when, when his wife died, he wrote about it in a book called Surprised by Joy. He also wrote about it in a book called Grief Observed. And in this book, he, he, he says... Quote, I know God is good. What I don't know 
is how painful his goodness is going to be. I know God's good, but what I'm not sure about is how painful his goodness is going to be. If we find hope in the conversion of Paul, we also have to find hope in the calling of Paul. That Christ could call us to this and we go, I'll take it. Eternal victory is on the way. I will take it for now. And what it does is it gives meaning to the fact that this life is full of suffering. And God is not against you, church, but God is with you. He's offering something to you and you shouldn't miss it because Paul didn't miss it. Verse 17, the story goes on and says, Then Ananias went into the house and he entered it. And he placed his hands on Saul and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he sent me to you that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Paul's eyes and he couldn't see again and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and afterwards took some food and regained his strength. So this is the road to Damascus experience that Paul had. Showing us the hope that God is pursuing you. God is going to willingly remove your blindness. And nothing you have done in your past disqualifies you from the salvation God offers you and the purpose God has for your future. And even if your future involves suffering, there is a fellowship there. There is a power of the resurrection there. And all of that should stir our hope. But you can't do it yourself. You can't go back to good works. It's never going to work if you keep thinking you're going to do this yourself. C.S. Lewis also wrote about this, this process of conversion and how trying to do it yourself is really the enemy of experiencing all that Paul experienced in Act 9. And he wrote about it in a children's book called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, it's one of these books. And in that book, there's a main character named Eustace. And Eustace has developed an evil heart, and it turns him into a dragon. But he doesn't want to be a dragon. He wants to be a boy again. But he can't figure out how to change. So Eustace, the dragon, goes to Aslan, the Jesus figure, the lion. And he tells him, I don't want to be a dragon anymore. I want to be a boy. So Aslan leads him to this fountain of pure water, and he's going to bathe in it. And literary scholars say that this next portion that I'm going to read to you, it's, it's C.S. Lewis telling his testimony using Eustace's voice. That in the voice of Eustace, C.S. Lewis tells you what his own experience was like. So Eustace says this, The water was as clear as anything, and I thought I could get in there if I could bathe, it would ease all my pain. But the lion, Aslan, told me I must undress first. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began to came off, come off all over the place. I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of my old skin. I could see it lying there beside me, rather nasty, but I, I felt lovely. So I started to go down into the well for my bath, but just as I was going to put my foot into the water, I looked down, and I saw that the skin on my feet were growing hard again, and rough again, and wrinkled again, and scaly, just like the dragon I was before. And then Aslan the lion said to me, you're going to have to let me undress you. I was afraid of the claws of Aslan. I can tell you I didn't want to do it, but I was pretty desperate. I needed help, so I lay flat on the ground on my back to let him do it. The first tear Aslan made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began peeling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I had ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel away. 
Well, he peeled that beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done myself the other three times, only that hadn't hurt. And there I was lying in the grass, only surrounded by much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking dragon skin than I had ever seen before. And then Aslan took hold of me, and I didn't think I could be touched because I was so tender underneath the skin. And Aslan threw me into the water, and it, it burned like nothing I'd ever felt for just a moment. And then after that, the water became perfectly delicious. What a great phrase, perfectly delicious. I started swimming and splashing around, and I found out that all my pain was gone. And then I saw why I wasn't hurting anymore. It's because I had turned into a little boy again. The story of the gospel is that you can't heal yourself. But the hard truth of the gospel is that you're trying and I'm trying, and we've done the work, we've peeled all that we can, and it just keeps growing back. We've tried good works, we've tried everything, and none of it seems to truly transform us. The only thing that actually sustains is letting Jesus take away the old self. This is what Paul experienced in Acts chapter 9. He finally understood that I don't earn God's favor through good works. I freely receive God's favor through the finished work of Christ. Paul spent the early years of his life trying to earn God's favor and the later years of his life resting in the finished work of Christ. That's what's available to us, church. But do you see it? Do you see that God's pursuing you right now in 10,000 ways? God is pursuing you like I'm pursuing my daughter even though she doesn't love me. He's pursuing you. Do you see that you're blind towards the goodness of God towards you, and yet he pursues you anyways? Do you realize that your past doesn't disqualify you from a future? This is the best news in the world, that this is available to us. And then that conversion can send you into a calling that may suffer, may bring hardship, but you say, bring it on, because there's a fellowship with Christ and the power of his resurrection available to me. But the only way you get there is by letting Christ remove the old self from you. Letting Christ remove the scales. Well, church, he wants to. He's done everything available to make that possible. We just have to allow his finished work to be done on our behalf. So I want to pray right now we take the opportunity to allow him to pursue us and that we would become this kind of people. Let's pray together, church. Father, we thank you for your word, your word that tells us the story of your goodness towards us. God, your word that tells us how you pursue us even when we run from you. God, your word that tells us you pursue us even though we have so much brokenness in our past. God, God, I pray that right now as we sing, as we worship, as we pray, God, that we would not miss this opportunity to confess again our need for you. God, I pray right now we would not miss this opportunity to confess again our failures towards you. And God, in so doing, would we receive again your grace, receive again your forgiveness, receive again the good news of the gospel. God, fill us with hope this morning because of what you're capable of. God, open our eyes to see how good you are to us and how much you long to be in relationship with us. Uh, Lord, your word says in John chapter 4 that you're seeking worshipers. Jesus tells the woman at the well that you're seeking worshipers. Father, I pray that as you look down on Grace Church this morning, you would find what you're seeking.
you would find people who worship you in spirit and in truth. People who want to know you above all else. Above our happiness, above our own dreams. God, we want to know you. Be transformed by you. Fellowship with you. God, make us those kind of people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.